Father, we thank you that your word is a light to our path. Your word illuminates things that we need to know as we understand your mind, your will, your commands, your provisions, and who you are as our God. So, Lord, take this passage of your word and open our minds and hearts to what the significance of it is in revealing to us the greatness of who you are. And we pray that you might apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit's work and grace, gracious dealings. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself making your way up a steep incline and you think to yourself, oh, I don't think we're going to make it to the top. My mind has gone back a number of times to when I was a single bachelor in um, Asheville, North Carolina, and I met a fellow who had recently gone through a divorce, uh, going to the same church I was on staff, and he was looking for somebody to jog with, and I was looking for some exercise, and so we started jogging together on the Blue Ridge Parkway. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Blue Ridge Parkway. Okay, it's not a flat road. The Blue Ridge Parkway indicates there's lots of hills, lots of mountains, and uh, makes its way through a beautiful part of this country. And so we would meet every so often and, and run together. And, uh, and it was very interesting because <clears throat> he was quite talkative, even while he was running, which helped me because I don't say a word, I'm gasping for breath. I'm just trying to keep going. And so he'd be chattering about this and chattering about that, and I'd make a brief comment and try to get my breath. And so it was amazing because the way it worked was we would go around a bend and we eventually we get to the section where it's uphill, 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 around the corner, uphill. And I'm like, okay, enough already. Let's turn around and go back the other way to the car. And he kept saying, no, let's go a little bit further. Let's just go around that corner. So he would keep encouraging me to go further and further. And that is the time in my life in which I ran the longest distance I've ever run, which is about three or four miles. And I would not have run even a mile had it not been for Toby and the encouragement he was to me. I wonder if you would, thinking about your own life, would you say that your life at this time seems like a series of trials and testings that leave you sort of struggling as you go forward? You keep waiting for a break and you keep looking for a plateau, you look for a section of life where you can just sort of coast downhill for a little bit, like let the pressure off a little bit here. Has your life situation remained a steep uphill climb? You might be facing a chronic medical condition, which for some reason shows no sign of improvement, and you're living with it, and it's not easy. It could be that your finances never seem to catch a break. Just when you thought you would have paid off that big bill that you've been worried about for so long, you get another reminder from your car mechanic, by the way, it's going to be a $500 bill. Or maybe that your spouse that you have cared about so many years, been praying for for so many years, that that person would become a believer, you find that they even more so have less and less interest in the things of God. Or maybe you're a parent of a teenager, and that teenager, you have been concerned about the number of 
friends that have not been a great influence on this teenager and your concern and you recently heard that their son was hanging around with them again and they got into trouble recently. It's unclear what it may be, but, the, but if you ever since, again, I think we've all faced situations where the problems we have seems to have now metastasized in a sense and gotten to be worse problems instead of easier. It's like the people in Houston, Texas. I mean, they had rain. Tons of rain. And then they said, and now there's more rain coming. It's like, enough already. Maybe you feel like that this morning. May I remind you that Christians are not promised problem-free lives. No promise in Scripture that says that. Jesus' followers sometimes make assumptions about God's ways. We draw the conclusion sometimes that God knows how much we've been struggling with a number of afflictions, and we need a break, God. And so we look to God to resolve one problem before He would, at whatever reason, give us an, a, another burden to deal with. And the temptation, of course, for us, if that does not happen the way we thought it should, is that sometimes we feel like quitting the race. We feel like throwing in the towel, we feel like giving up on God and just sitting on the sidelines. Well, anyone vaguely familiar with the book of Acts and with the apostles whose actions and deeds and their involvement in ministry is recorded there will know that the, Acts, the apostles in the book of Acts did not coast along a downhill slope. Again, we've, I'm going to go back to this book I had left off in chapter 17. And so I hope you have your Bible open there to Acts chapter 18 because we're picking up again the story of the Apostle Paul. He is on his second missionary journey and he is here as a person who at one time had no interest in Jesus Christ and his desire was to make all kinds of problems for any follower of Jesus to persecute them and to cause them to be arrested and misabused, or abused, if you will, just because they're followers of the way. And yet God intervened in the Apostle Paul's life, turned him around, changed his heart, gave him a new desires, a new direction in life, and now he himself is involved in proclaiming to not just his fellow Jews, but all kinds of people beyond Samaria, beyond just the confines of where he grew up and what he was familiar with, He's now taking the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, to all of the various parts of the known world. And as you read this account of the ministry of Paul, beginning in verse, sorry, beginning in chapter 13 of Acts, Paul's ministry was what? An uphill climb. Do you remember in Lystra what happened to him? He was stoned. Imagine that. They, let, they stoned him and left him for dead. and Somehow he survived. That was followed by his ministry in Philippi, chapter 16, in which he was beaten with rods and thrown into the innermost dungeon in prison. And then we just pick up the fact that he just narrowly escapes the crowd and the mob that are ready to rip him to shreds in Thessalonica. And then we come to his ministry in Athens, chapter 17 of Acts. And there he was met with all that he proclaimed, talking about Jesus, talking about the resurrection. 
he was met with intellectual indifference. Eh, this seems a little odd to us. They didn't seem to be too compelled. It's interesting when you look at chapter 17, verse 32. Literally, their response was to throw out the lip. I don't know what that means, but that, I take it that that means they were sneering at him. Maybe it's like, you know how you lift your lip up, you know, like, oh, please. You know, it's like a sneering kind of view of him. And so we come to chapter 18. Paul moves on to another steep hill climb. It just keeps getting steeper and steeper. He's now in Corinth. Now what's he facing? Corinth, if you know anything about the town, it was the Las Vegas of the known world at that time. It was the Amsterdam of Macedonia, if you will. It was a city of widespread promiscuity and sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, in reading in the background of this particular city, every night, there's a, by the way, there's a, there's a very obvious um, hill in the vicinity of, of uh, Corinth, and sitting on top of the hill is this temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and every night, descending from that temple, there would be a thousand prostitutes coming down from that mountain, coming into the city to provide who knows what among the people of that city. Everything was permissible. Everything was uh, going on in this city. And clearly here is Paul facing another, another huge challenge before him. Now, if you look at what Paul said about his approach to this city and what was going on inside of him, it's fascinating. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You might want to look at it or you might want to just listen. He says in a very succinct way, Paul says, listen, when I came to you and I was going to minister to you in the city of Corinth, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul. He is afraid. Indeed, when we get discouraged, it seems to me we're much more vulnerable to being afraid. And I think he was just worn down. I think he had been through the mill, and he says, I don't think I have a whole lot of gas to keep going uphill at this point in my ministry. We reach him at a time in which he was struggling. And interestingly enough, in chapter 18, God supplied him with the thing he needed the most. He gave him encouragement. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's some people here today who need encouragement. I would dare say we as a church are desperately in need of encouragement. We've seen better days. And so what we find here in chapter 18, God provides to this weary, worn-out servants at least two, probably many more, but I'm going to boil it down to two forms of encouragement to press on and to not give up. The first is this. God provides encouragement through gospel partnerships. Gospel partnerships. When Paul left Athens, he was separated from his co-workers. 
He left them behind. He just said, I'm moving on myself. He gave assignments to different people. And these, the, the majority of these intellectuals that he was talking to there uh, in the Areopagus, in the sophisticated part of that city among all these philosophers, they weren't impressed by his messages. They called him a seed picker, which is a person who's like, you're an amateur. You're an amateur philosopher, and you're just picking up and borrowing ideas from other people. They, they just didn't, showed him no respect at all. And so what a blessing when Paul leaves there dejected, feeling like he didn't make that big of an impact there, although there were some that did respond. What a blessing that he comes to this next town in Corinth, and he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, a couple whose names rhyme. Isn't that nice? Aquila and Priscilla. And boy, do they have a story to tell. They're not from Corinth. They've been moving around from here to there. And guess what? Their Jewish background had brought them all sorts of disrespect, people who had threatened them because they were Jewish. <clears throat> and so they've had to make, make their way out of Dodge a number of times, just like the Apostle Paul had to get out of town a number of times. And the Lord brought their paths together here, and it was through this particular encounter that not only did they come as people now at some point who came to faith in Jesus the Messiah, and that they shared a number of things in common. They both knew the hardship of persecution. They both knew what it was to be uprooted because of danger posed by the opponents of the Christian faith or opponents of people who are Jewish. And they also shared a similar thing in common in terms of their livelihoods. It's fascinating. They both were tent makers. They both had a business in which they were able to use their skills in working with leather, likely. And they were both able to make either tents or other forms of garments and things. And so they, were, they had pretty much shared in common this particular uh, skill in business uh, abilities. And so Aquila and Priscilla... From them, Paul received this practical help. Practical help. He was able to earn some money at this point, which he desperately needed. And they hosted him in their home. They shared their resources with him. So they gave him fellowship, they gave him food, and they gave him what? Some finances, financial, financial help. Now here's my point I draw from this. God uses ordinary people who are given ordinary skills to make an extraordinary difference in the lives of God's people in the realm of Christian ministry. Don't ever think that God can't use you as an ordinary person with ordinary skills. You say, well, all I do is fill in the blank. Drive a truck, I drive a bus, I deliver oil, I, I uh, work with computers, I whatever. Whatever your skill is. Don't ever think that I, I, I'm a housewife and I make food and clean laundry. Don't ever think that God can't use you to make a huge impact in the lives of other people. As a matter of fact, this Aquila and Priscilla, the couple whose names rhyme, they were people who were making a huge 
valuable partnership with Paul. Look at the way he described them in Romans 16, verses 3 and 4. This is how Paul describes their contribution. He says this, he says, Aquila and Priscilla are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their lives for me. I don't know exactly what he's alluding to. I don't know exactly what all he, you know, what exactly happened there. But clearly, he sees them as going to the mat for him. I'm wondering, are you a person who goes to bat for other people in our church? Are you a person that helps to make meals for someone who's in need of meals in our church? Are you a person who gives a ride to people that need it? Are you a person who prays for others? Do you work with others to help advance the kingdom of God? Are you involved in other people's lives? Or do you sit on the sideline and say, well, you know, life's tough, I'm in a tough spot, and I'm not going to get involved with anybody else. God, i got enough on my plate. We need each other. And we may not see it fully now, but let me tell you something. Serving other people in practical ways can be used by God to provide immeasurable encouragement to weary workers in the kingdom of God. You folks have done it to me many, many times. Many times. Now, I don't have time to keep expanding this a whole lot further, but there's other, other evidence in verse 5 of this text in Acts 18. Paul also received encouragement when the arrival of his co-workers Silas and Timothy showed up. And Paul had left them behind to handle some issues there in Berea, another town he was previously ministering in. They showed up as planned. Apparently that's what that was agreement was, that they would show up when they finished all that. And they show up bearing really some generous money with them. If you look at Philippians, you'll find that they brought with them a gift that they gave to Paul, a financial contribution from this church among these Christians. And they're bringing that, they give it to Paul. They also bring news about the Thessalonians, which was good news. And so Paul is encouraged so much so that now he says, okay, I'm not going to do this more leather work. I'm just going to just minister. I'm going to be freed up now, and I'm going to make, just focus on that one thing. Verse 5. Here are these two men. They end up keep serving alongside of Paul again and again for years, and they were faithful to do what they had promised. They shared ministry responsibilities with the Apostle Paul. And Paul delegates responsibilities to others. He was not a one-man show. That's so important to remember. Ministry is something we do collectively, together, helping each other. And now he was able to focus his time, the majority of his time and efforts, because he was now partnering with faithful men who were serving with loyalty, who were serving with love, and is it any wonder that George Swinnick in his comment there, his quotation in the notes, said that Satan watches for those vessels that sail without a convoy. People who are alone in the Christian life are very vulnerable to getting picked off with discouragement and feeling like what they're doing is more than, more than they can handle because they are handling it, trying it to on their own. And so the Lord was so gracious to give Paul these people. The Lord is gracious to give us a church family. We're not alone. 
Now you say, well, I'm not a part of a church family. Then what keeps you from joining a church family if you're a follower of Christ? We welcome those who are followers of Jesus who want to commit to, in the covenant of membership, their partnership in the gospel. Number, number two, and this is where it really gets incredibly amazing in what happens next with God's encouragement for the Apostle Paul. He encouraged him through reassuring promises and a divine perspective, verses 9 and 10. He says here, the Lord, the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. It's rather unusual, isn't it? I don't think Paul had an, a regular night vision in which the Lord Jesus spoke to him. I assume that God did this primarily because at this moment Paul was struggling. He was really in a tough spot. And maybe you're saying, you know, I just wish God would speak to me like that. I wish I could hear God speaking to me directly like that. You know, my friends, God speaks to me all the time. I hear him. He speaks to me. You say, wait a minute. Yeah, he does. Every time I read the word of God, he's speaking to me. And when I read it out loud, I hear it. And he is speaking to me. So I'm not trying to suggest that this is normative. That is, we need to expect to hear some audible voice, or we're going to have some sort of vision when you go to sleep tonight, but I am saying God does, and he does and can speak to you from his word. So what did God say to him? What was the promise? He made him three promises. Number one, he promised the promise of Jesus' presence. He says, I'm with you. How many times in the scriptures do we read of God reminding his people that he is with them? It is a long list. Especially when his people are facing insurmountable problems. When his, face, his people are facing intimidating changes. When his people are facing imminent danger. Those are the moments that God oftentimes is recorded in Scripture as saying, listen, I'm with you. That includes people like Joseph. When he was taken by force, sold into slavery, and who knows where he was going at that time. He had no clue what his life was going to be like. The scriptures say, Genesis 39, the Lord was with him. Moses feared returning back to Egypt because of all of the mess of what he did when he lost control of his anger. God is sending him back to lead the people out of slavery. What do we read? The Lord was with him. I am with you. It is Joshua who is given the responsibility and unnerved by this huge undertaking to step into Moses' shoes and to take over the leadership of the children of Israel. Joshua 1, verse 5. Joshua 3, verse 7. I am with you. Again and again, God giving that reassurance. And then when you get to the people of God later on in the book of Isaiah, which they are gone through horrible discipline and, and uh, trials and and other nations who've come in and, and destroyed Jerusalem. And what does God say to his people? 
when they think that there is nothing but deep water and deep trouble all around them, God says, hey, I'm with you. Even though you go through the deep waters, the deep rivers, I will be with you. God assures Paul that he's not facing this uphill climb all on his own. God doesn't abandon his people when they endure hardship and when they seem to get in a situation that goes from the worst to even worser. That's bad English. I won't say it anyway. Things go from worse to worser. God doesn't just walk away from you when that happens. He doesn't disappear when the testings intensify. He says in Hebrews 13.5, right? I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. If you have never memorized that verse, that's your homework assignment. What helps you when you have fear gripping you, overwhelming you, causing you to feel like, I don't know that I can move forward here? Hebrews 13, 6 says, The Lord is my helper. 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 I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? You see, fear is the prevailing emotion that we experience when people are big and God is small. Ed Welch, a book you ought to read. When people are big and God is small. Why should we be afraid if God is sovereign and God is wise, and God is loving, and God is present with you in your uphill climb. He knows we're facing an uphill climb as a church. Why are we afraid? He knows what we need. He knows what you need. He knows what is best. He knows what will serve as a means of sanctification in your life. And so, my friends... What Paul was saying, what God was saying to Paul, he is saying to us today, rest in the encouragement of God's promise that he is with you. He's present with you. Be encouraged. God is with us as a church. Be encouraged. There's another promise here in this text that is recorded for God's dealings with Paul. He has a promise of Jesus' protection. Now, if you have no Paul's track record, city after city after city, you start hearing the pattern of what happened to this guy, right? He's moved into another city. So here's Paul getting ready to proclaim the gospel, and what? He's probably bracing himself for mob violence. If it's not that, then he's waiting for this miscarriage of justice to take place when the local political guy wets his finger, puts it up in the air, and says, okay, let's see which way the crowd's going today, and I'll decide what I'm going to do with this, you know, troublemaker. He's just waiting for all this to happen again. And so the Lord assures Paul in verse 10 that in this town of Corinth, he says, nobody's going to attack you in order to harm you. Whew. What a nice relief to know that, huh? For once, 
Paul, you're not going to have these rocks being heaved at you and your head and your body. For once, you're not going to undergo this painful abuse of people beating with you with rods. And the Lord gives him this assurance that ministry in this town, the town of Corinth, is going to be different. Now, when I read verse 11, I've been scratching my head saying, Paul stayed there for how many months? 18 months, a year and a half. You say, I wonder why he stayed there so long. Hmm. If you were promised that you weren't going to get beaten up and stoned and thrown into prison with having been beat with rods, maybe that's why you'd stick around there for a while too, right? The Lord urged him to keep on speaking. The Lord urged him not to quit teaching, not to quit preaching, not to quit sharing about Jesus Christ. Keep going. Keep at it. I'm going to look out for you. It must have taken a lot to intimidate Paul. I don't think he would have ever been silenced by a small concern. I'm not sure exactly what led to this possible discouragement this time in his life. I don't know if it's because he was wondering how much fruit he was seeing or the lack of fruit in his ministry that might have discouraged him. Perhaps he didn't see, um, after months and months, he, he just getting so weary of this debating and all this, this uh, reasoning and fighting those same battles again and again with the authorities and whatever it was, the groups that were opposing him. But Luke records this potentially dangerous situation in which, after this assurance, this guy named Gallio, the local political head honcho there, he... He comes and he, at the, he, he's going to have this particular uh, meeting in the, in, the, in the marketplace there where he gives a render his decision. And it says, look at the text, verse 14. At the precise moment that Paul was about to speak up and get himself into the situation where here he goes again, right as he's starting to defend himself and explain what comes, boom, here comes the forces against him. But it didn't happen here. Gallio, at that moment, refused to hear the complaint of the crowds that were there, bringing something, bringing a charge against Paul. And so God provided a way of escape. God enabled Paul to keep on speaking of the cross of Christ, the foolishness of the gospel. And eventually, many people came to faith in that city of Corinth. Now, what's the point? I'm not suggesting to you that you're not going to get hurt ever or that God's going to provide some assurance that from here on out, you're going to be spared any kind of hard times, physically speaking. That's not the promise here. The promise is that God is sovereign. And so he's reminding Paul, listen, I'm in control of what happens in your life. And the events that took place in Corinth while Paul was there, these things were orchestrated by God. Now I wonder if you can concur with that in your mind to say, do you believe that the events of your life, you say, well, I'm on this uphill climb, it just keeps going uphill climb, and then i got another uphill climb around the corner probably. Can you say with the psalmist, Psalm 31, my times are in your hands, O God? Is God sovereign in your life? Listen to what Spurgeon said. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. You say, well, I'm up all night worrying. Maybe we know why. 
Somehow we've lost a picture of God and His, His control and sovereign hand over everything. Brad Bigney, that great biblical counselor that I've appreciated so much in his ministry, he says, God limits, God orders, God controls all things for His glory and our good. Do we believe that? Nothing happens by accident. We can move forward in faith, confident that nothing happens apart from God's sovereign will. And that's why Paul kept moving forward. He didn't become sidelined by fear. He didn't resign himself to doing nothing with this fatalistic outlook. Look at verse 21. When he talks about his plans later on, he says, listen, I'm going to return to you again if God wills. I love that. That's a humble guy who says, listen, I'm not in control of everything. I'm not stressing out trying to be in control of everything. I'm just realizing that what? James 4. As God wills. I'm hoping to do this or do that. Now, we are to do what God requires us to do, and we do so resting in the providential plan of God. We can't always know what's going to happen. But let me tell you something. If you look backwards in your life, you can see clearly the outlines of God's sovereign will for your life. You've not gotten off course. God is sovereign, and He has a plan. Therefore, we don't give up. There's great encouragement in that, my friends. And lastly, there's the promise of Jesus' predestination. Yeah, I'm going to say that word again. Predestination. You say, where in the world did you get that? What are you talking about? If you look at this text, verse 10, very interesting to read what Jesus says here to the Apostle Paul. He says, no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I'm going to tell you something. One thing that's going to wear you out, or would wear anybody out, is thinking the thought or believing the truth that everything, in terms of the outcomes in life, everything depends on you. If you deal with life on that basis and, some, and you become overwhelmed because you say, it's up to me to see my husband's heart change. It's up to me to see my wife's heart change. It's up to me to see my teenager's heart change. It's up to me to see my boss's heart change. It's up to me to see my neighbor's heart change. If you think it's all up to you, guess what? You need some encouragement. <laughs> That's too heavy of a burden to carry. What I believe Paul is received here from Jesus is a reassurance that Jesus has many of his elect in that city of Corinth. You see, Paul's work is not a fruitless work. God has other sheep in which he is going to bring into this fold. John chapter 10, verse 16, he talks about that. In other words, when the Jewish ministry is rejected once again, Paul says, listen, I'm just wiping my hands off of this stuff. I'm moving on as God would have it to this other group. He's saying, listen, there's great comfort in knowing that that's the reality. Now, I know some people here are very uncomfortable with the term God's elect or God's chosen people, but the scripture writers 
do not shy away from it. And I want you to turn at this point to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, you need to write down another verse, and that's Acts 13, 48. Acts 13, 48, again, previously in the ministry of Paul and Silas, it says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. What is that saying? That's saying that God, who had His sovereign and, provid- and predestined work, His own people, they did come to faith, they did respond to the gospel that was proclaimed to them by Paul and Silas. And so here he's saying, in this text, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth, and it was for this he called you through our gospel. What do you see in that text? I see the sovereign grace of God in predestination, and I see the human responsibility of people involved in ministry bringing the gospel to them, and both working together in the same verse. Over 50 years ago, J.I. Packer wrote a very helpful book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If you've never read it, I urge you to read it. I've got an extended quote in your notes. Packer writes, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. What does he mean? For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Why? Because God is working. Apart from the sovereignty of God, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. He's saying if it's all up to you, then you wouldn't see very many people come to Christ. Who's who's the one that really changes people's hearts? You and me? No, God does. But he uses the means of those of us who are stammering, afraid, frightened, intimidated people who are his, his, his evangelists, evangelists in this world. He uses us to bring the truth, but we don't change anybody's hearts. God changes people's hearts. He does it sovereignly, but in grace. But both go together. God's sovereign choosing and our faithful proclaiming. I go back to the time I was running uphill on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Had I been there by myself, had I been making that endeavor with earbuds in my ear, my earphones, just focused on myself, if I was just focused also and letting my mind obsess over all the potential dangers there, of the cars that kept passing me, of the drivers who were distracted looking at the view instead of looking at me, or thinking I'm going to twist my ankle on a rock or whatever uneven surface, I would have quit. I would have quit, walked away, said, forget this. My friend, 
if you're discouraged and ready to quit, let me urge you, you are not alone. You are not also in control. Christ is. And the ministry results are not resting entirely on your shoulders. The future of our church is not resting entirely on my shoulders or your shoulders. But it's a time to humble ourselves, to find encouragement in God and in His promises. And guess what? God wants to speak to you today. Are you listening to His Word? Are you seeking Him as you read the Word? And I'll just urge you once again, just to prime the pump before you read the Word, Google the words of How Firm a Foundation. That great hymn. Read that several times before you pick up your Bible. And let me tell you something. Your heart is going to be reminded that God has given the same promises He gave to the Apostle Paul. He's given to you and me. He speaks to us in His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would sow the seeds of encouragement among our hearts today especially for this person who might be among us today, Lord, who is so discouraged, who is so fed up with life, who is looking for an escape, looking for a way out, but who still insists on never fully surrendering to Jesus Christ, who's still trying to deal with life and their own strength, their own wisdom, their own efforts to try to make life work and to try to somehow become someone on their own terms. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who's never come to you on your terms, who's never admitted they need a Savior, they need a rescuer, and never realized and confessed that it is Jesus Christ, the one who died for them, who paid for their sins on that cross and was raised for their justification, Lord, I pray that you would give them the ultimate encouragement today to know that they can have new life in Jesus Christ if they will believe, if they'll repent of their sins. Quicken their hearts today, I pray, Lord, with the ultimate encouragement of salvation in Christ. And I pray, Father, for those of us who are running the race of discipleship and we're headed uphill and we're ready to quit, we're so discouraged and we're so distraught. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a fresh awareness of your presence, of the fact that we are not alone. We have other people of like precious faith. I pray that you would help us to find assurance that you are sovereign in control of what's happening around us and before us and behind us. And I pray, Father, that we might be confident that you are able to bring people to faith through our feeble efforts at ministry. Help us not to give up and as a church to move forward, not afraid, but confident in what you're doing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.